The epistle of Jude was written by Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The Greek text states the name of the author as Iudas or Judas. In order to prevent any confusion with Judas Iscariot, the translators decided to use the shortened name Jude. The name Judas is the Hellenized or Greek form of the Hebrew name Judah. And as such, his name means confessor of Yahweh. Jude identifies himself to his readers as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The term bondservant, doulos, is an individual who serves at the will of another. The term implies that such an individual is obedient and devoted to his or her master. Now, previously, believers were bondservants of sin, but now we are willing bondservants of God. Romans 6, 16-18, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one of whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been, been freed from sin, you became slaves or bondservants of righteousness. Now there's no doubt that Jude viewed being a bondservant of Jesus Christ an honor. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Joshua, Samuel, David, and the prophets were all referred to as Yahweh's doulos, or bondservants. Joshua 24, 29. It came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant, the doulos of the Lord of Yahweh, died being 110 years old. 1 Samuel 3.10 Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel! And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant, your doulos, your bondservant, is listening. Psalm 89.20 I have found David my servant, my doulos, my bondservant. 2 Kings 17.23 Until the Lord removed Israel from his sight, as he spoke through all his servants, doulos, bondservants, the prophets. In the New Testament, Paul, Peter, and James also referred to themselves as Christ's doulos or bondservants. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant, doulos of Christ Jesus. James 1.1, 1, 1, James, a bondservant, doulos of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant, a doulos, and apostle of Jesus Christ. Most importantly, however, to identify oneself as a bondservant is to identify with Christ in his humility and obedience. Philippians 2, 5-8 Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even the death on a cross. Believer, are you behaving as a bondservant? Are you humbling yourself and obeying Christ willingly? Jude also identifies himself as the brother of James. Now why mention who his brother is unless his identity meant something to his readers? The name James, Iacobos, is the Hellenized form of Jacob. In the New Testament, there are several James to whom Jude could be referring. The first candidate is James, or Jacob, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, the apostle, as we see in Luke 6.16 and John 14.22. That this James is identified as Judas' father and not his brother disqualifies him as a candidate. If this was the James to which Jude refers, why would Jude not identify himself as an apostle? Rather, Jude did not number himself among the apostles. Jude 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second candidate is James, John's brother and one of the apostles, as we see in Matthew 10 too. If this James was to whom Jude was referring... Why is there no mention of John? Furthermore, the apostle James, brother of John, was beheaded by Herod Agrippa I in A.D. 44. Acts 12.2 details that. And that is long before Jude's epistle. The third candidate is James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James or Jacob the Lesser. However, there are no significant contributions in the New Testament attributed to this James. And the lack of contribution decreases the likelihood of his prominence among the readers of this epistle. Therefore, it's unlikely that he is the James mentioned by Jude. The fourth candidate is James, or Jacob, the half-brother of Jesus. Matthew thirteen fifty-five to 56 Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they all not with us? Now, James was not a believer during the earthly ministry of Jesus. John 7, 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. However, after the resurrection, James did become a believer. Acts 1, 14. These, all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Later, James became an elder of the church of Jerusalem. Acts 21, 18, and the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Paul also noted James as one of the three pillars of the Jerusalem church in Galatians 2, 9. Recognizing that grace had been given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be, the, be pillars, gave to me Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. This James authored the epistle which bears his name in A.D. 49. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the best candidate for being the James mentioned by Jude. By mentioning his brother, Jude anchors his authority for penning this epistle to James, the elder of the Jerusalem church. Being the brother of James... Jude is the last 
and third of Jesus' brothers. Considering they had sisters who were not named and likely born between the boys, it's quite possible that Jude was under 20 years of age when Jesus died. After their salvation, Jude and his brothers served the Lord as itinerant preachers. 1 Corinthians 9.5 Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles, and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? It is evident as well from 1 Corinthians 9.5 that Jude had a wife. The Jewish Christian apologist, Hegesippus, A.D. 110-180, who wrote against Marcion's heresy, recorded that Jude had sons and grandsons. He wrote this, Of the family of the Lord there were still living the grandchildren of Jude. Information was given that they belonged to the family of David, and they were brought to the emperor Domitian. For Domitian feared the coming of Christ, as Herod also feared it. And he asked them if they were descendants of David, and they confessed that they were. And when they were asked concerning Christ and his kingdom of what sort it was, and where and when it was to appear, they answered that it was not a temporal nor an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly and angelic one, which would appear at the end of the world, when he should come in glory to judge the quick and the dead, and to give unto everyone according to his works. Now the question has to be raised as to why Jude did not mention his relation to his more famous brother Jesus. Instead of emphasizing the earthly relationship he had with Jesus, Jude chose to focus on his submission to Christ's lordship. He viewed being the bondservant of the Lord as far better than being the brother of Jesus. And in doing so, Jude demonstrates humility. Additionally, he writes as the bondservant of Jesus Christ, indicating that he writes only those things that are in accordance with his master's will. Now Jude also has an appreciation of Jewish literature, which plays an essential role in his epistles. He quotes from both the Assumption of Moses and the Book of Enoch. Jude verse 9. Quoting the assumption of Moses, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Quoting from the book of Enoch, Jude 14 and 15, it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and in all of the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, we need to underscore the fact that the reference to these books does not authenticate them as inspired by God. He is referencing statements from these historical records that are truthful. Jude's Jewish literature usage is no different from Paul's quoting of pagan Greek poets and philosophers. For example, Acts 17.28, Paul says, For in him we live and move and exist, and he, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Titus 1.12-13, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith. And while there's no specific date attached to this letter, it was written after Peter's second epistle, which dates A.D. 65 to 68. 
Examining both epistles, it is evident that Jude quoted 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, Peter warns his readers that false teachers are coming. Jude, however, writes that the false teachers have arrived. And we see 13 similarities between Jude and 2 Peter. Jude 3, 2 Peter 1, 5. Jude 4, 2 Peter 2, 1. Jude 6, 2 Peter 2, 4. Jude 7, 2 Peter 2, 6 to 7. Jude 8, 2 Peter 2, 10. Jude 9, 2 Peter 2, 11. Jude 10, 2 Peter 2, 12. Jude 12, 2 Peter 2, 13. Jude 11, 2 Peter 2, 15. Jude 12 to 13, 2 Peter 2, 15 to 17. Jude 16, 2 Peter 2, 18. Jude 17, 2 Peter 3, 2. And Jude 18, 2 Peter 3, 3. Because of James's mention, the use of Jewish literature, and the similarities between Jude and 2 Peter, we can determine that Jude's epistle was written to the second generation Jewish Christians scattered throughout Asia. As a follow-up to 2 Peter, Jude initially determined to write about the doctrine of salvation. Jude verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. Now, Peter had previously written about the doctrines of the Bible, God, end times, and Christ. However, noting that false teachers had crept into the church, Jude was led by the Holy Spirit to write to these scattered and suffering saints to exhort them to contend for the faith in order to oppose these false teachers. Jude 3 to verse 4. I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Another unique aspect of Judas's writings is his use of triads. There are 14 different triads in this short letter. The first two triads are found in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, Jude reveals the believer's state, called, beloved, and kept. In verse 2, Jude prays for the believer's standing, an abundance of mercy, peace, and love. And so as we examine Jude 1 and 2, Jude writes about the believer's state and standing. The believer's state and standing. So in verse 1, we'll examine the believer's state, called, beloved, and kept. And in verse 2, we'll consider the believer's standing, mercy, peace, and love. Let's begin with verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved, in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude addresses his readers by noting their past, their present, and their future states, called, beloved, and kept. And his use of these descriptions is an allusion to Isaiah. In his servant's song, Isaiah proclaimed that redeemed Israel is called, loved, and kept by God. Isaiah 41.9 You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Isaiah 43 verse 4 Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. 
Isaiah 48, 12, to 15, 12 and 15, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. I, even I, have spoken, indeed, I have called him. Isaiah 49, 1 and 8, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named me. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you a co for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. So what is the believer's past state? It's called. The believer's past state, called. The first title called reflects on the believer's past state. The term called here, kletas, is not a verb, but instead an adjective. It refers to someone whose presence has been requested and which refusal is not optional. The term called first appears in the marriage supper parable, Matthew 22, 1-14. The parable is a prophecy regarding the Lamb's marriage supper, which will celebrate the union between Christ and his bride, the church. This supper will be celebrated during the millennial kingdom. In Matthew 22:14, Christ sums up the parable with the statement, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now in the parable, the called are those who received an invitation to enter Christ's kingdom. The chosen, the ekletos, to so the called are the kletos, the chosen are the ekletos, are those who obeyed the call. Hence the call to enter Christ's kingdom, which is the gospel, is extended to all. Only those who respond positively to the call with repentance and faith are referred to as the chosen, the ekletos. Now the chosen, the term chosen, ekletos, means select or choice. In 1 Peter 1.2, Peter identified his readers as ekletos, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Paul states in Ephesians 1.4 that God has chosen us in him. The verbal form there of chose is in the middle voice, indicating that God chose believers for himself. However, this verb is also plural, meaning that the choice is of a group, not individuals. As such, God chose, God's choice or election is concerned with creating a group or a nation, not choosing isolated individuals. God chose the nation of Israel, the Levitical priesthood, the holy angels, and the church. Each group's choosing or election took place in eternity past according to God's purposes. Ephesians 1.4 Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 2 Timothy 1.9, who is saved and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. The choosing of these groups is according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge, prognosco, refers to prior acknowledgement, to be acquainted with someone before meeting that person. In eternity past, God knew who would and would not receive his Son as Lord and Savior. And so in eternity past, God chose the means and method of humanity's salvation. God decreed to create all humanity and allow them free will along with its consequences. He decreed to provide salvation for humanity and save and secure every sinner who responds to his call with repentance and faith. 
John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 10.43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God graciously allows humanity the free will to determine his or her eternal destiny. Those who refuse to repent and believe will, of their own choosing, spend eternity in the lake of fire. No one is cast into the lake of fire because God did not elect or choose them. And so that we are the called means that we have responded to the call of salvation. This is the believer's past. Now, the second title, the beloved, refers to the believer's present state. The verb beloved, agapao, means sacrificially seeking the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. This is the love believers have for one another. 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. 1 Peter 2.17 Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Peter used the noun form of agapao to refer to his readers as beloved, agapetas. In the New Testament, the term agapetas describes the love of God the the love God the Father has for God the Son. Mark 1.11 A voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Agapetas, Son. In you my, I am well pleased. Mark 9.7 A cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Agapetas, Son. Listen to him. So the terms Agapetas and Agapao denote both sacrificial love and fatherly love. And by referring to his readers as beloved, or agapao, Jude expressed that they were the objects of God's sacrificial fatherly love. Romans 1.7, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude emphasized the fatherly aspect of God's love by referring to him as father. Jude states that the called are beloved in God the Father. The preposition in denotes the idea of being in the sphere of something or remaining in something. Hence, we are in the sphere of God's love, his sacrificial fatherly love, and we remain in that sphere. However, let's not take this state of love for granted. God's grace is not licensed to be lazy. And so Jude commands us in verse 21 to keep yourselves in the love of God. The verb keep there is in the aorist tense, meaning to remain in the state in which one is presently. As an imperative, it indicates that we are required to maintain our present state. So how do we maintain the state of being in God's love? Jesus provided the answer. He stated that we remain in God's love by obeying God's commands. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
That word abide there means to dwell or to remain, to stay in God's love. Genuine believers are those who keep his commands. And therefore, if you're keeping God's commands, you can be confident that you are remaining in the sphere of God's love. The third title, kept, refers to the believer's future state. So in the past, we were called. In the present, we are beloved in God, the Father. And in the future, we are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, it's critical to underscore that there is no preposition in or for here in this Greek text. It literally just says, kept Jesus Christ. The verb kept, terio, is the same verb used back in Jude 21. However, here the verb is in the perfect tense and passive voice. The perfect tense implies that this keeping began in eternity past, and continues into eternity future. When the verb keep, terio, is in the aorist active voice, it can be translated as maintain. In verse 6, Jude used the aorist active form of keep, and angels who did not keep their own domain. That is, they did not maintain their appointed state. As previously noted, the aorist active form of keep was used in verse 21 indicating that believers are to maintain their present state of being in God's love. However, when the verb keep, tereo, is used in the perfect tense and passive voice, it can be translated as to guard, store, or hold someone or something in reserve. Now in 1 Peter 1.4, Peter used the perfect passive form to describe our future inheritance as kept or held in heaven. It guarantees that we will receive our inheritance. Both Jude and Peter used the perfect passive form of the verb kept, denoting the false teachers who had been reserved for eternal damnation. 2 Peter 2.17 and Jude 13. That is, God in eternity past predetermined to store or keep false teachers in prison and hell awaiting their future damnation in the lake of fire. Therefore, When Jude uses the perfect passive form of kept here in Jude 1, he indicates that believers are being guarded or held in reserve for someone or something. Now, two questions must be asked. One, who is doing the keeping? God the Father or Jesus Christ? And two, for what are we being held? Now, as to who is doing the keeping, the grammar provides the answer. The verb kept, tereo, is a dative participle. As a dative participle, it denotes agency. That is, it indicates the agent by whom the action of the verb is accomplished. Daniel Wallace in his Greek grammar outlines how to determine a dative of agency. Basically, when a perfect passive verb is joined by a dative noun that is personal, it acts as the subject of the verb, and agency is then being shown. Jesus Christ is a personal noun in the dative case. It's joined to a perfect passive dative participle, kept. Hence, it is Jesus Christ who is doing the action of keeping or guarding believers. Thus, believers are loved by God and kept by Jesus Christ. 
to who or to what, though, are we being kept? That Jesus Christ keeps believers recalls the promise of John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them. Tereo. In your name, which you have given me, and I guarded, philoso, them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Now the term philoso there is a synonym for tereo, meaning to guard. Thus, Jesus was keeping or guarding his disciples so that none of them perished. By keeping believers, Jesus guarantees that we will receive our inheritance at his coming. 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved, here's that word, kept in heaven for you, who are protected, guarded by the power of God, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Indeed, as Jude proclaims in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep, to rayo you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Because Christ keeps to rayo believers, they will not stumble. That is, genuine believers will not apostatize or fall away from the faith. Indeed, all whom Jesus keeps or guard will be presented as blameless before his Father. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12 that he staked his very life on this guarantee. I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard, philoso, what I have entrusted to him until that day. The believer state, called, loved, and kept. Jude continues his greeting with a prayer. And that this is a prayer is known by the verb may be multiplied. Verse 2, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. That verb may be multiplied, plethuno, is in the optative mood. Now in the New Testament, the optative mood denotes a prayer. And Jude's prayer for mercy, peace, and love is unique to the New Testament epistles. However, it was a common greeting in the early church. The martyrdom of Polycarp, written in 155 A.D., begins mercy, peace, and love from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied. And so Jude's prayer demonstrates that believers are secure in their standing before God. So now we have the believers standing, mercy, peace, and love. Our state is called, loved, and kept. Our standing is one of mercy, peace, and love. Again, the verb may be multiplied is passive, expressing the idea that God has already granted this triad of virtues to us. But now he prays that these virtues would be multiplied. Peter also prayed that God would multiply grace and peace. 1 Peter 1.2, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 2 Peter 2.2, 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the fullest measure, or be multiplied is a Hebraic idiom often found in Jewish prayers. The verb may be multiplied means to increase or become more significant in number. You see, Jude could have prayed for an addition, prostitheme, of these virtues, but instead asked that these virtues be multiplied, plethuno. The choice of term is significant in mathematical terms. Consider, 16 added to 16 equals 32. But 16 multiplied by 16 equals 256. 
And so Jude prayed that we would have an abundance of these virtues. Without a doubt, suffering and scattered believers need an abundance of mercy, peace, and love. First, Jude prays for an abundance of mercy. Mercy, Ilias, is attending to those in misery by providing the resources to meet their needs. You see, when God looked down upon us as sinners, he saw our wretched condition, which is damnation in hell. In mercy, God sent his own son to redeem us from the curse of sin and damnation in the lake of fire. We need to continue to need God's mercy to sustain us in times of difficulty. Hebrews 4 verse 16, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And by experiencing mercy, we should be extending mercy to others, particularly those who are victims of false teachers. Jude 22, And have mercy on some who are doubting. Believer, do you demonstrate mercy to others, particularly your fellow believers? So first, Jude prays for an abundance of mercy. Next, Jude prays for an abundance of peace. Peace, Irene, is the tranquility that results from experiencing God's mercy. Now, God's peace provides calm when evil abounds and produces confidence in God to protect us. As Philippians 4, 7 states, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace guards us from anxieties, doubts, and fears. And so, believer, when you find your heart and your mind overwhelmed with anxiety, with doubt, and with fear, pray to God for an abundance of his peace. And here's another reason we need God's peace, because false teachers cause strife and division. Jude 10 and Jude 19. These men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. These are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. With an abundance of peace, we are to strive to be at peace with all men. Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Third, Jude has prayed for an abundance of mercy. He has prayed for an abundance of peace. And now he prays for an abundance of love. Love, agape, is sacrificially seeking the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. God displayed his love by sending his son to redeem us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And as the object of God's love, we have been adopted and called the children of God. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. See, this abundance of love from God enables us to be joyful amidst the slander of paganism and the deception of false teachers. And we need this abundance of God's love in dealing with false teachers who are unloving and care only for themselves. Jude 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, 
when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. Now having an abundance of love, believer, you must seek to demonstrate that love to others, particularly your fellow believers. We must, make, we must seek their highest good, regardless of whether we're given a thank you or anything in return. And so, believer, you need to ask yourself, are you demonstrating mercy? Are you demonstrating peace? Are you demonstrating love? Now, we could easily dismiss Jude 1 and 2 as merely an opening greeting to an epistle. But Tim, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. These two verses contain a treasure trove of theological truths. And we would do well to remember that Jude wrote these theological treasures to ordinary Christians. He didn't write to seminarians, but to scattered and suffering saints. To be scattered and suffering, these nuggets of theological truths sustained them and can sustain us in our darkest hours. Our state, we are the called, the loved, and the kept. And we are receiving an abundance of mercy, peace, and love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you, Lord, for the opening verses of Jude, this greeting. One that reveals to us great truths regarding our state and our standing. I thank you, Father, that in eternity past you called us. That presently, Lord, because we are the called, we are loved by you. You are our Father. We are your children. You've adopted us into your house. You've given us all the privileges of an heir. And Father, I thank and praise you that we are kept by Jesus Christ. That Lord, our groomsman, our Savior, is at work at all times to guard, to guarantee that we will one day receive our inheritance and stand in your presence blameless with great joy. I thank you, Father, that while we're passing through this life, not only have you granted us mercy, peace, and love, but, Father, you continue to give us an abundance of mercy, peace, and love. Lord, help us to demonstrate that to others. Help us particularly to demonstrate that to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by doing so, Lord, that we may grow together in the faith once delivered. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.